Well, folks, it has been a a remarkable weekend so far here at Living Water. Uh, On Friday night, uh, we celebrated the grand opening of uh, the Oasis Playground. Ever since we purchased this property back in 2004, uh, we've dreamed of having a a first-class playground uh, for our community. And God has not only uh, granted that and brought that into reality, but Amazingly, through only a way that he could do, he paid for every dime of the $130,000 that it cost to put that playground in the ground. Uh, Last year, uh, as we were approaching uh, the end of the year, uh, we had a a decision to make. Uh, We had enough money to to buy all of the playground equipment. We had been uh, saving that through our nonprofit Oasis Community partnership, and you had to buy the equipment before the end of the year because the the way these playground guys do it is they're like, hey, if you buy it before the end of the year, you get a 50% discount on a price that we've already marked up 50%, basically. And and so, you know, we we took the jump, and in faith, we bought this playground equipment and uh, didn't have the money to put the stuff in the ground. And uh, through a a number of different events, events basically or interactions or whatever. Uh, We ended up applying for a a grant from the county and and the county uh, provided us $30,000 and then the township uh, of their own volition without us even asking said, hey, we want to partner with you in this. And the township picked up basically the rest of putting the playground into the ground. So it has been uh, really uh, remarkable. And it's amazing what happens when when God's people and God's church and, and the nonprofit community and the government all decide to work together on something that's going to be a benefit to people where you don't care about political parties or agendas or anything like that, that everybody comes together and say, how can we do something that's good for our community? And uh, it's, it's really worked out well. I was like a kid in, in a candy store on Friday night when we cut that ribbon and that place, there must have been 150 kids playing on all that equipment. How no one got hurt is beyond me. Uh, but it was great, and uh, you know we're excited. That's uh, just the beginning. The, the plan is to uh, raise some additional funds uh, to put some swings in there, uh, a smaller uh, play set for, for little kids so the little kids don't get trampled upon, and uh, some stuff for kids with special needs. So uh, it was very, very exciting. And then uh, yesterday morning, uh, I, I went and took a, a young man on a little airplane ride, and Kathy had an event here at church, and I came home uh, yesterday afternoon, and Kathy is just like bouncing off the wall. She's like, you will not believe what that women's event was like yesterday. Robin was amazing. There were 40 plus women, and learned so much about covenant, and I'm just like, God, this week just can't get any better, and then then I'm like, yeah, we're having pizza after the 11 o'clock service, so so things are like going to be really good, so if you're here, and uh, you want to come back after the 11 o'clock service uh, downstairs? We bought, uh, got right now, uh, Marco over at Franco's is cooking up pizzas. He's got, we got like 50 or 60 pizzas coming. And uh, just to kind of have fun together. So uh, it's been a, a really great, great weekend. And uh, I don't know that we could pack anything else into it. But we do have to get a sermon uh, in today. So why don't we do that uh, we're continuing through our series that's entitled The, the Children of Abraham, A, a Legacy uh, of Faith. Uh, today, uh, we are going to examine a, a passage about the marriage of the patriarch Jacob. 
uh, to two sisters, Leah and Rachel, and that, that's kind of freaky that someone's going to actually marry uh, two sisters. Uh, to make it even crazier, he does that over the span of seven days. Uh, that was not his original plan, uh, but what we're going to discover, and I'll give you kind of the big idea right out of the shoots. Uh, as we examine this passage, what we're going to discover is that faithfully following after God involves not only God's blessing, but also God's discipline. That's what we're going to see uh, this morning. So uh, let's get started. If you have a Bible with you, go ahead and uh, open it up to Genesis chapter 29. We're going to examine the first uh, 30 verses of that chapter. If you don't have a a Bible, there's Bibles on the tables uh, around the room. If you don't own a Bible, please take one of those. Uh, there are gift to us or gift to you. Uh, we want you to read them uh -huh, because God's word is powerful and active. It can transform. It not can. It will uh, transform your life. Genesis chapter 29, 1 through 30. And if you're able to stand, if you would do so, uh, in honor of God's word. Then Jacob went on his journey and came to the land of the people of the east. And as he looked, he saw a well in the field, and behold, three flocks of sheep lying beside it, for out of that well the flocks were watered. The stone on the well's mouth was large, and when all the flocks were gathered there, the shepherds would roll the stone from the mouth of the well and water the sheep and put the stone back in its place over the mouth of the well. And Jacob said to them, My brothers, where do you come from? And they said, We are from Haran. And he said to them, Do you know Laban, the son of Nahor? And they said, We know him. And he said to them, Is it well with him? And they said, It is well. And see, Rachel, his daughter, is coming with a sheep. And he said, Behold, it is still high day. It is not time for the livestock to be gathered together. Water the sheep and go pasture them. But they said, we cannot until all the flocks are gathered together and the stone is rolled from the mouth of the well. Then we will water the sheep. While he was still speaking with them, Rachel came with her father's sheep, for she was a shepherdess. Now as soon as Jacob saw Rachel, the daughter of Laban, his mother's brother, and the sheep of Laban, his mother's brother, Jacob came near and rolled the stone from the well's mouth and watered the flock of Laban, his mother's brother. And then Jacob kissed Rachel and wept aloud. And Jacob told Rachel that he was her father's kinsman and that he was Rebekah's son. And she ran and she told her father. And as soon as Laban heard the news about Jacob, his sister's son, he ran to meet him and embraced him and kissed him and brought him to his house. And Jacob told Laban all these things. And Laban said to him, surely you are, bone of my, uh, or you are my bone and my flesh. And he stayed with him a month. Then Laban said to Jacob, Because you are my kinsman, should you therefore serve me for nothing? Tell me, what shall your wages be? Now Laban had two daughters. The name of the older was Leah, and the name of the younger was Rachel. Leah's eyes were weak, but Rachel was beautiful in form and appearance. Jacob loved Rachel, and he said, I will serve you seven years for your younger daughter, Rachel. And Laban said, it is better that I give her to you than I should give her to any other man. Stay with me. So Jacob served seven years for Rachel, and they seemed to him but a few days because of the love that he had for her. Then Jacob said to Laban, 
Give me my wife that I may go into her, for my time is complete. So Laban gathered together all the people of the place and made a feast. But in the evening, he took his daughter Leah and brought her to Jacob. And he went into her. Laban gave his female servant Zilpah to his daughter Leah to be her servant. And in the morning, behold, it was Leah. And Jacob said to Laban, what is this that you have done to me? Did I not serve you for Rachel? Why then have you deceived me? And Laban said, it is not done so. It is not so done in our country to give the younger before the firstborn. Complete the week of this one, and I will give you the other also in return for serving me another seven years. Jacob did so and completed her week. And then Laban gave him his daughter Rachel to be his wife. Laban gave his female servant Bilhah to his daughter Rachel to be her servant. So Jacob went into Rachel also, and he loved Rachel more than Leah and served Laban for another seven years. This is the word of God. You may be seated. Now, earlier this uh, week, I, I took some time and uh, I listened to the, the message that Pastor Ben had, had preached two weekends ago when uh, Kathy and I had uh, gone away uh, to New Jersey on vacation. And, and Pastor Ben uh, spent some time to explain to, to all of us the great lengths that God goes to, to, to draw people to himself. And he explained that by using Jacob as an illustration. Jacob had grown up with parents by the name of Isaac and Rebekah who loved God. And uh, they definitely had some problems like, like favoritism and deceit. Uh, but nonetheless, they still loved the Lord. However, Jacob, who kind of inherited the deceit trait, uh, doesn't really show in, in any of the encounters that we've seen so far that, that really he shares the faith of his parents. And, and no doubt some of us can relate to this. Uh, some of us have grown up in, in families where, where mom or dad or grandma or grandpa or aunt or uncle, they deeply loved the Lord. But we kind of grew up and, and, and we didn't love the Lord. Uh, or perhaps it's, it's the other way around. Maybe you're a mom or a dad or a grandma or a grandpa and, and you've got a son or a daughter or a grandson or a granddaughter or a niece or a nephew and you love the Lord, but, but they don't love the Lord. And it's a, it's a very kind of frustrating thing. But, but somewhere along the way, at least for many of us here in this room, Despite our, our apathy and perhaps our, our animosity towards the things of God, God in his mercy and in his grace uh, relentlessly reached out to us and drew us to himself. And that's exactly what happened to Jacob. Jacob was in a bad way. He was most probably, if, if you do kind of the math and kind of uh, interpolate some things, he was probably in his mid-70s, which would have been middle age back in those days. He was probably in his mid-70s, unmarried, struggling with a completely messed up life when he began this journey of 500 miles from the land of Canaan, ultimately up to his mom's homeland in Haran. 
And uh, because of his deceit and, and treachery against his twin brother Esau, Jacob has had to, had to flee, and that's why he's on this journey. And so he's left the safety of his home, he's left the, the love of his family, the comfort of a, a probably a pretty pampered life, and he's journeying some 500 miles to find his mom's extended family. And there in, in the midst of the desert, Alone, afraid, most probably dead broke, Jacob has this dream that Pastor Ben tells us about, and he encounters God, the one and only true God of his parents. And God, uh, it's a God that Jacob knew about, but one that he never really knew. And in this dream, God bestows upon Jacob the covenantal promise that, that he had given to Jacob's grandfather, Abraham, that he'd given to Jacob's father, Isaac, and now it has been given to Jacob. And it was a promise that he would have innumerable offspring and that his offspring would be a, a, a blessing to all the peoples of the earth. And in response to the dream, Jacob makes a vow, a promise, that he would follow God all the days of his life. And so with, with a, a, a new life, a changed life, a, a new faith, a new purpose, Jacob, he continues on this journey to Haran looking for his mother's family and hopefully he's going to find a wife. And brothers and sisters, that's why uh, Pastors Ben and James and Paul and I, the balance of our staff and our leadership team and volunteers do what we do. Uh, not to find a wife, that's not why we do the things that we do. I, I put in here, pause for hopefully some laughter is what I wrote in there. But we do this because we desire for every person who calls living water home to have a life-changing encounter with the one and only God. That's what we want. I, I mean, if I don't want anything else. We, we, don't need, we don't need buildings, we don't need playgrounds, uh, we don't need buses that pick up kids and stuff like that. What, what I desire with all of my heart is for every one of the people in this room to be utterly dependent upon Jesus. That we wake up in the morning and we say, I am not going to be able to get through this day without the risen Son of God on my side. Uh, I desire and we desire for every one of us to, to fully recognize our, our, our sinfulness to, and then to be overwhelmed with the utter holiness of God. When we sing those songs, holy, 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 we should have goosebumps and, and, and chills because God is so incredibly awesome and, and other than us. And we, we should grieve over the fact that our sin alienates us from this holy God and, and we should come to the point where we humble ourselves and come to grips with our inability to please God in and of ourselves and to acknowledge our, our deep need for forgiveness and ultimately repent of our sins and receive Jesus as Lord and Savior with all of our heart, soul, and mind and love him and love others as we've been called to do. That's my desire. Yet for as much as I want that and our staff and leadership wants that for you, we would be doing you an incredible disservice if we didn't tell you what to expect when that ultimately happens. 
And many of you have already figured this out, so some of this won't be news to you, but others haven't. Because what we see from Jacob's life is this. We can expect two things when we begin to follow hard after Jesus. It's blessing and discipline. Those are the two things that are coming our way when we begin to follow hard after God. Let me show you how this blessing plays out. After making a journey of some 500 miles, Jacob comes into the, the land of Haran. And uh, he comes upon a well. And, and this well would, uh, would have been a, a hole in the ground that had been, been dug by some industrious individuals who dug down till they ultimately uh, found ground water. And it would have been covered by a large, heavy, flat rock that was used from, from people to keep people and animals from falling into that well inadvertently and, and, and getting hurt, perhaps dying, perhaps drowning. Uh, you know, they didn't have street lights in those days, so you could be walking around at night, and if there was an uncovered well, boom, you know, you fall right into it. So they put this huge, heavy stone over the well. It's also there to keep the well from being contaminated. So there's lots of practical purposes for this. And, and moving this stone that they put over this big well uh, would require the efforts of, of a number of individuals. This, it couldn't be just like one person pull this bad boy off. It typically would take three or four people uh, to do it. And additionally, uh, the folks who uh, would have dug this well because water was so precious, they're the ones who set up the rules for how the well gets dug. They determine the people who are allowed to open the well. They determine what times the well is allowed to be opened and whose flocks are ultimately able to be uh, watered from this particular well. And it's so incredibly precious that this is a very, very important thing in that culture. And there at the well, Jacob finds three flocks of sheep that have been gathered together. Now, this is somewhat unusual because we're told a little bit later it's in the middle of the day. And typically what would happen is, is shepherds would water their sheep in the beginning of the day, and then the sheep would go out and do their grazing throughout the day. Then they would gather together in the evening back at the well. They would water their sheep again. They would hang out by the well where everybody was at so everyone is protected and then they would do the whole cycle over again. Uh, but for some reason, uh, here these shepherds are with their sheep at the well in the middle of the day. And this is what goes down. Jacob says to them, my brothers, where do you come from? And they said, we are from Haran. And he said to them, do you know Laban, the son of Nahor? And they said, yes, we know him. And he said to them, is it well with him? And they said, yes, it's well. And see, Rachel, his daughter, is coming with the sheep. And he said, behold, it is still high day. It's not time for the livestock to be gathered together. Water the sheep and go pasture them. But they said, we cannot until all the flocks are gathered together and the stone is rolled from the mouth of the well. Then we'll water the sheep. So Jacob asked them in verse 4, where are you guys from? And amazingly, these guys, they say that we're from Haran, the very place that, that Jacob's mother's extended family is from. And Jacob replies, Haran, man, is it possible that you know this guy by the name of Laban, the son of Nahor? And the guys go, yeah, we know that guy. 
And, and as a matter of fact, here comes his daughter, Rachel. And it's at this point, folks, that things actually get kind of humorous. And it's easy to, to miss the humor in this because we're 21st century readers that are, are just kind of blasting through this stuff that we read. But you've got to remember that, that Jacob is in his mid-70s. He's not married. He's come on a, a journey to, to not only save himself from, from being killed by his twin brother, but he's also on a journey to find a wife from his mother's extended family's household. So here comes this beautiful young woman who just happens to be the daughter of his mom's brother. And Jacob sees her. And what is the first thing that he does? He wants the other shepherds to hit the road so he can be alone with this woman. That's actually what's happening. Look at verses 7 and 8. He says to these guys, Behold, it is still high day. It's not time for the livestock to be gathered together. Water the sheep and go, pasture them. But he said, We cannot until all the flocks are gathered together and the stone is rolled from the mouth of the well when we water the sheep. In other words, he's saying, Guys, you're cramping my style. You know, I, I got to do my moves. I've been practicing these things for, for a long time. Can you just get yourselves and your smelly sheep out of here? I've got some business to transact. And the shepherds reply, hey, man, dude, we can't go until we water these sheep. I mean, these guys, they're like the pesky little brother when, you know, you're at the mall and you got your little brother and you see a girl that you really like and, and you're like, you know, here, here's a dollar. You know, at least in my day, it would be, you know, here's a dollar. Go to Spaceport at the Colonial Park Mall and, and play uh, Pac-Man or Avenger or something like that. And uh, so check out what happens then. Now, as soon as Jacob sees Rachel, the daughter of Laban, his mother's brother, and you've got to understand, all this stuff is happening simultaneously here. As soon as the mother of his mother's brother and the sheep of Laban, his mother's brother, Jacob came near and rolled the stone from the well's mouth and watered the flock of Laban, his mother's brother. Then Jacob kissed Rachel and wept aloud, and Jacob told Rachel that he was her father's kinsman and that he was Rebekah's son, so she ran and told her father. Now, when you're in your 70s and you are trying to impress a woman who is much younger than you, you need to pull out all the stops. So Jacob single-handedly goes to this cap of the well, uh, one that has to be removed by multiple guys, and, and does his, his best impression of, of the spokesman for, you know, Nugenics, the testosterone booster, and yanks this bad boy off. You know the commercial I'm talking about, right, where the two girls are sitting by the pool, and over on the other side of the pool is, is this real uh, doppy old guy. He kind of looks like uh, George Bush, and, and, and he dives into the water, and he comes out before the girls, and the guy's like completely ripped. I mean, that's what's happening here. He just rips this bad boy off, and he's got this amazing scene, and then he kisses Rachel, tells her that he's her relative, and she runs off and gets her dad Laban. Laban comes to the well. He comes up to Jacob. They hug. They kiss. And ultimately, Jacob goes home to live with Laban and his family for a month. So what did we just witness there? 
Yes, we witnessed a, a, a scene of extreme human strength off by a 70-year-old guy, but we witnessed something else. We witnessed God pouring out his blessing on Jacob. Think about Jacob's track record. He uses his brother Esau's impulsiveness against him, and he gets Esau to give him his birthright for a bowl of stew. Think about that. And then later, he dresses like Esau to confuse his blind, dying father so that he can steal Esau's final blessing. He's a deceiver, he's a manipulator, he's a liar, but he's something else. In spite of all of those things, he's been chosen by God. In spite of all of that sin, in spite of all of that deceit, the glorious God of the universe said, Jacob, I want you. And one of the things that God does for his children when he draws them to himself is he blesses them. And throughout the pages of the Bible, we see God time and time again providing for his kids. Jesus himself says this in the Sermon on the Mount. Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat, or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. It's not life more than food and the body more than clothing. Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his life? And why are you anxious about your clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothed the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Therefore do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. You see, if God provides for the birds of the air and the flowers of the field, if God provides uh, for the sunshine and pours out the rain on the just and the unjust, how much more will he bless his kids? You see, God blessed Jacob. He, he sustains Jacob in the journey. He leads Jacob to just the right well where he meets just the right people who know his mother's family. He placed Rachel, his future wife, right before his eyes. And more than anything else, on this journey to Haran, God reveals himself to Jacob, not because of anything good about Jacob, but because of everything good about God. And brothers and sisters, that's what God has done for every one of you who have repented of your sins and receive Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. First of all, he has blessed us 
first and foremost with forgiveness of sin through the shed blood of his son, Jesus Christ. God sent his son to the cross to pay the penalty for your sins and mine. And on that cross, Jesus bore the wrath of his father against our sin. And through that empty tomb, he conquered death for once and for all. And if that's the only blessing that God has ever given us, if the balance of our life is hard, difficult, filled with every trial that we could possibly imagine, if the fact that Jesus has paid the price for our sins and our name has been written in the book of life, if that's all that we got, that should be more than enough. But the fact of the matter is, God didn't stop there. For every one of us sitting in this room right now, he has placed us in the most prosperous time in the full of history. He has put us in an amazing nation that despite its many faults and failures, and there are many faults and failures, our nation has failed in lots of different ways. But we are in a place of unequaled freedom and opportunity. And many of you in our church family did not originally grow up in the United States. Many of you have grown up in difficult places. So you know full well the great opportunity that has been placed before us. For many of us, he has given us family and friends. He, is, he has provided jobs for the vast majority of us. For those of us who don't have jobs, he's uh, provided unemployment. Uh, he's provided welfare. He has provided a social service system that is next to none for a country that has some 300 million people plus. We live in homes and apartments or dorms or boarding houses or group homes complete with fresh water. We walk up in the, wake up in the morning, we turn on a tap and fresh water flows from that tap. We use a toilet and we flush it and it is forever gone that we never ever have to think about it. We have indoor plumbing, air conditioning, heat, food in our cabinets and refrigerators. For those of us who struggle with those things, there are, are food pantries and compassion funds and all kinds of things. We can read and write. Some of us have been blessed uh, with not only a high school education, but we've been able to go to trade school or go into the military or get a college education. We have health, and even those who struggle, medical care is readily available. I want you to picture this for just a moment. On Wednesday, I sent you an email about an urgent prayer request for our, our church family member, Mel Kelly, for his sister. It's Sherry, right? Is that her first name? Sherry. And, and Sherry was driving to work on Wednesday morning, 7 o'clock in the morning, in Carlisle, doing what every one of us do. We're just driving down the road, staying in our lane. And a young guy who had a record of selling drugs, who was either drunk or high, crosses the double yellow line, crushes her car. The car collapses around her legs, destroys her legs, busts her pelvis in all kinds of pieces. And do you know what happens next? 
a helicopter lands. And firemen show up with a fire truck worth $800,000. And for this woman, they peel her out of the car. They put her in a helicopter. They fly her to the Hershey Medical Center where there are physicians who have studied for, for decades to be able to, to fix human bodies. And those physicians go to, the, go to a refrigerator and they get out pints of blood that have been given that are waiting for her. And they have to amputate her leg above the knee. They've got to put pins in her other leg. They've got to put her, her pelvis all back together. She spends one night in the hospital with her abdomen completely opened up and packed because they don't know if they have to go back in. And even at this very moment, as we stand in this room right now, she's going through another surgery. If that would have happened in Pakistan, or if that would have happened in Sri Lanka, she would not be here. You and I have been blessed by God in an amazing way. Many of us know the blessings of spouses and kids and grandkids and nieces and nephews. And if we were to sit down and really count our blessings, we would be going through reams of paper. Because God has blessed every one of us in amazing ways. If I look at my own life, I have been blessed beyond measure. God has given me this wonderful church family. I earn an income, a good income, telling people about Jesus. I used to tell people about connectors. I get to tell people, I get paid to tell people about Jesus. I have a wife who loves me despite many of my failures who's willing to go with, with me to, to Colorado to, to a, a pastor burnout counseling time uh, months ago where we meet this amazing counselor who was of great help to us, a guy who, who we meet with uh, once a month through, through Skype and who we met with this past Thursday. And I'm such a fool that I have a fight with her on Wednesday night before we meet with a counselor. I mean, that's the stuff that she puts up with. She's amazing. I've got grown kids who, who respect me and cherish me. I've got parents who consistently encourage me. And God has even granted me an opportunity to fly airplanes, something that I wanted to do from, from being a little boy. Is it hard at times? Yes. Do I battle at times with, with like a low-grade depression? Sure. Do Kathy and I have issues in our family? Absolutely. Do I have regrets? Do I struggle with sin? Sure. Do I wish sometimes that things were different in my life? Absolutely. But I'm telling you, I am blessed beyond measure. And so are every one of you. And we need to understand that. But it is so easy to, to, to think that, that, that my life is horrific. And, and for some of us, it is very, very hard. I get that. But listen to these beautiful words in John 1. And the word, Jesus, became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Jesus, John bore witness about him. And cried out, this was he of whom I said, he who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. From his fullness, and listen to this part, 
we have all received grace upon grace. As fully devoted followers of Jesus Christ, God has poured out upon us grace upon grace, blessing upon blessing, favor upon favor. And may you and I never forget the blessings that flow from being a child of God. But God doesn't just bless his kids. God also disciplines his kids. And for some of you, you're thinking right now, big buzzkill, Mike. Man, you, you were doing so good. I was feeling so good about this message. And, and, and now we're going to talk about discipline. Well, tragically, you know, there are a lot of churches and there are a lot of pastors who all they ever do is talk about blessings. They don't ever want to touch the discipline thing. They, they, they focus just on the blessings. Well, ultimately, uh, for those of you who are new today, you have chosen the wrong church for that. Uh, you made a bad decision uh, because we're going to talk about God's discipline. Uh, there's a famous quote from Benjamin Franklin that says this, fish and house guests smell after three days. Apparently, it took Jacob 10 times that amount to overstay his welcome with Laban. Look at verses 14 to 17. And Jacob stayed with Laban a month. Then Laban said to Jacob, because you are my kinsman, should you therefore serve me for nothing? Tell me, what shall your wages be? Now Laban had two daughters. The name of the older was Leah, the name of the younger was Rachel, Leah's eyes were weak, but Rachel's eyes were, or what Rachel was beautiful in form and appearance. Jacob loved Rachel, and he said, I will serve you seven years for your younger daughter, Rachel. Now, after a month of providing free room and board to Jacob, Laban had reached the end. He was done. He was like, things are going to have to change. Some of you know exactly how that works. You've had people come into your home, and they've eaten your food, and they've slept on your, cow, on your bed and your sheets, and uh, they've done it for a long period of time, and they have done nothing to support themselves. They're making zero progress. Some of you know that full well. I was uh, watching, the, as I was preaching last night and I was talking about this, there were several families in the church who I could see the, like the husband ribbing the wife, like, you know, this grown child needs to get out of this house right now and stuff like that. And so I was just, I kept going with it a little bit more. I thought, let me just rub it in a little bit harder. But uh, so yeah, Laban finally decides it's time for him to, to work or move on. So he says, because you're my kinsman, should you therefore serve me for nothing? Tell me what your wages shall be. This is just a nice way of saying, you know what, it's time for you to start working. And you need to understand something. Laban here is having Jacob transition from relative to servant. And you got to understand this. He's basically saying, dude, if you want to stay here, you have got to work. So tell me what kind of pay at least you're looking for. Jacob has never been a servant. He's had servants. He, he doesn't do the servant thing. 
He's the son of a patriarch. The guy's been living for 70 years. And now all of a sudden, he's going to have to start working. So he's giving a choice to work. And he says to himself, do I want to work for cash or do I want to work for a wife? He's like, hmm, I think I'll work for a wife. So Jacob decides, uh, let me work for a wife. And he's got basically two choices. Choice number one behind door number one is Leah, Laban's eldest daughter who has weak eyes. Now, what in the world does that mean? You know, you're reading that. You come up with all kinds of thoughts about, you know, she got like a lazy eye. Can she, you know, is she nearsighted? Is she farsighted? You know, what's going on? Well, well, the Hebrew word that is used here for weak uh, is typically translated tender, gentle, soft, delicate, or young. So it doesn't mean that she was like unattractive. It most probably means that she's the older sister, that she probably uh, looks much younger than, than her age, something along those lines. It, it's not like, you know, it really has anything to do with her eyes. And then behind door number two is Rachel, Laban's younger daughter, who we're told is beautiful in form and appearance. So while Leah may be pretty, Rachel is the bomb. She's the cover girl of Haran. I mean, she's just awesome. She's amazing. And so Jacob looks at the two of them. He points at Rachel and says, I'll take that one. And I'll give you seven years of work for her. Laban agrees, and for the next seven years, Jacob works for Laban, and we're told that, that it's not really a chore because he just loves her, and he knows what's it's going to ultimately happen, and seven years flashes by in the blink of an eye. And then, look at the next couple verses. So Jacob's, verse 20, so Jacob served seven years for Rachel, and they seemed to him but a few days because of the love he had for her. And then Jacob said to Laban, give me my wife that I may go into her, for my time is completed. Jacob actually has to go to Laban and say, hey, dude, the seven years is up. I've done my work. It's now time for my reward. Laban agrees, but he's got a surprise. So Laban gathered together all the people of the place and made a feast. But in the evening, he took his daughter Leah, brought her to Jacob, and he went into her. Laban gave his female servant Zilpah to his daughter Leah to be her servant. And in the morning, behold, it was Leah. And Jacob said to Laban, what is this that you've done to me? Did I not serve you for Rachel? Why then have you deceived me? So, so rather than giving Jacob Rachel to be his wife, Laban gives him Leah. Now, when I'm reading this thing, I'm like, how did that happen? I mean, I was at a wedding. I knew who I was getting. When I looked down there and it was Kathy, I would felt good about it. If it would have been Julie or Maria, I'd been like, time out. I didn't pick that note, Angelo. I picked that one. So, so how did this thing happen? What, what occurred here? And I'm trying to process all this stuff and, and, and looking through the commentaries, the guys are all over the place with it, but this is what I think ultimately went down. 
And you may or may not agree with me, but this is my perspective. And the word evening is the key word, I think, here. I believe the wedding happens during the day. And I believe that although the, the, the ladies are veiled completely and stuff like that, Jacob has got to be pretty confident that he's marrying Rachel because I'm sure Rachel and Leah don't talk alike. And so I believe that during all the festivities, it's Rachel. And I believe Rachel's in this with Laban and with Leah. Maybe she didn't have a choice. Maybe dad forced her to do it. Maybe she wasn't a willing participant. But I believe this is what happens. I believe that all the wedding ceremony goes down, and it's Rachel in the bride's clothing. And then somewhere when evening comes, when it comes time to consummate the marriage, there's a switch that's made. Clothes are changed. They go into a darkened room in a darkened night where there's not light, and the marriage is consummated, and he wakes up the next morning, and there is Leah. So what happened I believe Galatians 6, 7, and 8 happened, folks. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, one will also reap. For one who sows to his own flesh will weep, reap, will from the flesh reap corruption. But one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. God has allowed Jacob, the deceiver, to be deceived. You see, God isn't just in the business of blessing his children. He is also in the business of training his kids to be more like him. And one of the ways that he trains us is through discipline. Jacob had a lot of things that he needed to learn. He needed to learn that God values humility and servanthood. And so God made it so that Jacob had to serve Laban. And he had to serve him not just for seven years that went by in the blink of an eye, but he had to serve him for another seven years that were probably agonizing to learn that lesson. He needed to learn that deception hurts other people. And so God allowed Laban to deceive Jacob. And he needed to learn that the ends doesn't necessarily justify the means. In other words, God cares not just how things end, but he cares about the process that brings those things to an end. But he needed to learn something else. And we find that lesson when Jacob confronts Laban. Look at verses 26 and 27. Laban said, It is not so done in our country to give younger before the firstborn. Complete the seven week of seven uh, complete the week of this one, and we will give you the other also in return for serving me another seven years. Jacob needed to learn that the rights of the firstborn were to be respected. Something which he violated when he manipulated Esau away from his firstborn status. But even in the midst of discipline, God was still kind to Jacob. 
and he gives him the opportunity to marry Rachel, even though it costs him another seven years. And folks, it is important to realize this, and if you don't hear anything else that I say this morning, hear these words. The beautiful, loving God of the universe, when he disciplines us, that discipline is never, in capital N-E-V-E-R, never punitive. It is never designed to punish us, but rather it's corrective and restorative, designed to make us more like Jesus. Why do I say that it is never punitive? I say it because of this. The God of the universe is holy, and he is perfect justice. And the God of the universe understands that that sin only gets punished once. That if someone would get punished for the same for that single sin, and that punishment happens over and over again, that's not just. When we commit a crime, we serve the time, and we're done. And who has paid for our sins? Jesus. Every one of our sins, your sins and my sins, they've already been paid for in Jesus. So if God is disciplining us to be punitive, he is unjust. God is disciplining us for a different purpose. Listen to what it says in Hebrews chapter 10. Hebrews chapter 10 specifically talks about how Jesus' sacrifice on the cross was once for all and that no other punishment is necessary. And the Holy Spirit also bears witness to us For after saying, this is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, declares the Lord, I will put my law on their hearts and write them on their minds. And then he adds, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. Where there is forgiveness of these, there is no longer any offering for sin. You see, God wasn't punishing Jacob. He was instead transforming his character. And the same is true of all of us who have claimed the name of Jesus. Will God allow difficult things in our life? Yes. Will he allow us to reap that which we have sown? Absolutely. But will God do that to punish us? Never. Rather, he disciplines us for a completely different and more beautiful reason. It's because the discipline proves that we're his kids. Hebrews 12. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons and daughters. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline in which we all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, we have had an earthly father's who disciplined us and we respected them, shall we not much more be subject to this father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them, but he disciplines us for our good that we may share in his holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, 
but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who've been trained by it. So you see, God's discipline proves that we are his children. It is for our good that we might share in his holiness. And while it might be painful, it ultimately makes us more like Jesus. So when God disciplines us, we should receive it with humility. We should receive it with remorse. And we should also receive it with thankfulness because it proves that we are his children and that he wants to train us for holiness. And that brings me to my, my final point. I'll wrap this up really quickly, and it's this. The gospel keeps us from being too confident by God's blessings and too discouraged by God's discipline. You see, one of the dangerous byproducts of being blessed by God is the potential to make us prideful. We begin to think that we have this, that, or the other thing. Our house, our looks, our car, our family, our bank account, our reputation, or whatever else, not because of God's goodness and blessing, but rather because of our intelligence, or our hard work, or our persistence, our creativity, our inherent talent, or whatever else we might come up with. And it is easy to take credit for what God has done in our lives. And I know this full well. For the last, how should I put this? In a few weeks, it will be the 19th anniversary of the first Bible study that we held to start Living Water Community Church. From four Caucasian couples, five Caucasian elementary school students, and a three-year-old little African-American girl, all of this came. And over the years, people have poured accolades upon me and Kathy and my family and the original small group, the elders, the staff, and they're like, look at what you've pulled off. And there have been times, fortunately, brief times, that I've believed that the blessings that God has bestowed upon living water had something to do with me. Fortunately, when that happens, God in his grace, he gets my attention and he reminds me, I am simply an instrument in his hands that all of this that happened is because of, of Jesus' power and his creativity and his love and his sacrifice and his gospel. It has nothing to do with me or the Garbers or the Neggies or, 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 or the Bettingers or, or, or the Grosses or, or any of the other, or my mom and dad or any other families that were initially involved. It has nothing to do with the elders, with our staff, or anything like that. It has everything to do with Jesus. And that's what God's gospel tells me because it tells me that I am a sinner, that I fall short of the glory of God, that even on my best day, I don't meet God's standards, but that Jesus died for me anyway. And that, brothers and sisters, that realization, it crushes my pride. It puts things back into perspective, and it ultimately elevates God's glory while crushing my pride. And we need to understand that. That's what the gospel does. The gospel helps us keep from being prideful of the blessings that God has bestowed upon us. 
but pridefully trying to co-opt God's blessings isn't the only danger. So is being discouraged, perhaps even to the point of being crushed in the midst of his discipline. It's easy to think, God, why is this happening to me? What I've done isn't that bad. Why am I having to struggle this much? I don't deserve this. Other people have done far worse. Why me? Why me? Why me? Or on the flip side, it's easy to think, oh man, do I deserve this? I'm not worthy of God's love. Why doesn't God just kick me to the curb and be done with me? And both of those lines of thinking are wrong. You see, God's discipline isn't designed to, to discourage or destroy us. It's designed to encourage and form us. It's designed to make us more like Jesus. And that's where the gospel comes in. Because the gospel comes in and says what? That while we're yet sinners, Christ died for us. That there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That though my sins are like scarlet, they will be white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall become like wool. And that God's testing is designed to affirm the genuineness of my faith that will ultimately result in praise and glory to God. That's what it does. It reminds me that I am not nearly as good as I think that I am, but that I am far loved more than I could ever possibly imagine. And when we get that, it changes our lives. Let me pray for us. Lord God, thank you for this time. Uh, uh, Lord, I pray that as we uh, prepare to take uh, these elements, Lord God, that you would reaffirm to us that we are your sons and daughters. That your son's death on the cross was sufficient to cover even the most heinous sin that, Lord, you are in the business of reconciling, reconciling sinful people to yourself and that you have given us the great privilege of being your ambassadors to a world that is spiraling out of control. Lord, would you uh, bless these elements that we are about to receive and, God, might we take them with more joy than we have ever experienced. And it's through your son's name we pray. Amen.